As we continue to work our way through the entirety of John's Gospel, we find ourselves again this morning in a study of what many commentators and theologians call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We saw in part one last week that Jesus prays first that the Father will bring the fulfillment, bring to fulfillment the plan of glorifying the Son through his cross work, and then that the Father would receive him back into his heavenly glory, not only as the eternal Son of God, but also after having completed on earth the work that he was given to do, and after having completed his cross work as not only the eternal Son of the Father, but also as the conquering Messiah. And that He would enjoy His heavenly glory then in a twofold sense, both as the eternal Son of God and as, a, as the conquering Messiah. Now in our passage today, Christ rehearses what He has already done for the disciples, and He commits them into the Father's care. Let's examine in turn what Christ has already done for the disciples, and then what he requests of the Father now on their behalf. So beginning with what Christ has already done, Jesus says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And in verse 8, he says, I have given them the words that you gave me. Again, in verse 14, he repeats essentially the same thing. I have given them your word. And in verse 19, he says, For their sake I consecrate myself. Which simply means that he has set apart himself for the work, for their sake, in order that the goal of their sanctification, which we'll come to, would be accomplished. That's what that part means. But this whole idea of giving them your word, and manifesting your name, this is easy enough to understand at face value. Jesus has, has set himself apart, consecrated himself, in order to manifest God's name to the people, to give them God's word. He has been manifesting the Father's identity to the people. He has been speaking the Father's words, we read him say, plural. And he has been speaking the Father's word, singular which is a figure of speech referring to the entirety of what the Father has said, the entirety of the revelation, as opposed to contrasting words and word as if God has spoken a, at one time a lone, solitary, individual word which is able to be distinguished from the words plural. That's not really the sense of it. At one point he says, quite literally, I've given them your words, like all the things God has said, and then at another point he says, your word, which just sums up the whole thing. They're, they're parallel statements. They're saying the same thing. So we understand that Jesus has been an agent of revelation. That's not rocket science. The question arises, however, didn't the people whom God the Father gave to the Son already have God's word? And hadn't God's name already been manifested to them? In a sense, yes. Of course. And Jesus self-consciously stands in the tradition of the Old Testament revelation, and he endorses it fully. When tempted by Satan in the wilderness, how did Jesus respond? It is written. It is written. It is written. And Jesus spoke of the Old Testament in this way in Matthew 5.18. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, which is a way of speaking about the Old Testament revelation, until all is accomplished. So Jesus isn't claiming here, we know from other passages, that he has corrected or contradicted supposedly erroneous earlier revelation. Jesus endorses the entirety of earlier revelation. Nor is Jesus unaware of earlier revelation, or, nor does he invalidate it as if he's giving the first revelation. Jesus endorses, he's aware of and endorses the Old Testament down to the iota and dot, as our translation puts it, or probably more familiar for most of us, 
who were raised in the era before the ESV, down to the jaw and the tittle. What does Jesus mean then when he says that he manifested God's name to the people and that he gave them his word? Didn't they already have it? Hadn't God already manifested his name to them? The answer to that question is both yes, as we have seen, and also no. In Isaiah 40, which the people had already, God promised to tend his flock like a shepherd, to gather the lambs in his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that were with young. The people whom the Father had given to the Son had also not only Isaiah 40, but Isaiah 53, in which God promised not to send only a shepherd, but also a lamb, one who would die on behalf of the people. These people whom the Father had given to the Son had Micah 5.2, in which it was prophesied that this suffering servant would be born in Bethlehem. that he would be the son of David. As D.A. Carson says, the Old Testament revealed what the Messiah was. In other words, there was a Cinderella's shoe revealed in the Old Testament. But there was an incompleteness to the Old Testament. Carson goes on to say, the New Testament reveals who the Messiah is. The Old Testament gives us Cinderella's shoes, so to speak, and the New Testament gives us Cinderella. And we realize who fits the mold. We realize not only what the Messiah is, but in the coming of Jesus, we see who the Messiah is. At Jesus' birth, the angels appear unto the shepherds and say, Unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. The people of old had been led to expect a Savior who is Christ or the Messiah. And the angels announce at the birth of Jesus unto you now. It's happening. It's born this day. Go down where the prophet Micah prophesied to Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and you will find him. The angel appears also to Joseph and says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man and begins his public ministry and eventually announces, drawing on the imagery from Isaiah 40, I am the good shepherd. Jesus also says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And echoes of Isaiah 53 resound in the minds and the hearts of the disciples who hear him. He was pierced for our iniquities. Mm. This is the fullness of revelation. Jesus is the shepherd lamb. Jesus is the suffering servant, that son of David. There is clarity and fullness in the life and ministry of Jesus, which had been lacking prior to his incarnation. I've often compared biblical revelation to a sunrise. In the early chapters of Genesis, we see the sun peeking out over the horizon. It grows gradually brighter and brighter as we read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And it gets brighter and brighter, and Jesus is the noonday sun. So when Jesus says that he manifested God's name to the people whom the Father had given him, and that he gave them his word, He's not, he's not doing it in contrast to the Old Testament, nor is he doing it distinctly from, as if it's two separate revelations, but he's bringing it to fulfillment. He's bringing it to culmination, to completion. This is what Jesus has done in his life and in his ministry. 
In other words, he's not saying that he turned on the revelation of God like a standard light switch with, which an on, with an on and off switch. The revelation had previously been off and Jesus flicks it on. Not that. But rather like a dimmer switch that you turn. Jesus is saying that he has given them God's word and manifested God's name. Turning up the dimmer switch, as it were, to full brightness. Something like that is what is meant by Jesus manifesting God's name. Giving his word to the people whom the Father had given him. Next, Jesus says in verse 12, I have kept them and guarded them. Jesus has been careful to preserve his people. And Judas is not an exception to this, by the way, as if Jesus did a pretty good job, but, well, Judas, you know? It was not the plan of God to save Judas, you realize. He was not among those given to the Son by the Father in order that the Son would act as a shepherd lamb for him, to be a Messiah to him. No. To the contrary, the plan of God manifest in the Old Testament Scriptures was that Judas would be lost. And so Judas is not a counterpoint to Jesus' claim that he has kept and has guarded those whom the Father had given him. Jesus claims here that he hasn't lost one except he whose plan it was to be lost. No one given to the Son by the Father to be saved could have been lost. For their safekeeping is not a product of their own grip on God, but God's grip on them. The comfort of Scripture, as Deuteronomy 33 puts it, is that underneath are the everlasting arms. Not in the everlasting arms lies a faithful, consistent disciplined and successful saint. You see the difference between those two statements? Either way, you're still in God's arms, but where is the emphasis? We are portrayed in the Scripture more like wriggling toddlers, so to speak, who want to escape from mommy and daddy and run straight out into the road. We are like sheep who are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Thus, God must hold on to us. And He does. Underneath the wriggling toddler are the strong arms of His Heavenly Father who will not let Him run into the road. Underneath the wanderlustful sheep, if I may invent a word, are the arms of the Good Shepherd. Jesus has guarded and has kept his own thus far. He's praying for these disciples right here. From, and he's kept them and guarded them thus far. But he is departing and what will become of them now? In fact, Jesus' departure is so imminent that he speaks of the imminent future as if it's already present in verses 11 and 12. He says, I am no longer in the world. And he says, well, I was with them. The implication, I'm no longer in the world. Um, or pardon me, the, the implication, that's an explicit statement. The implication of, well, I was with them is I am no longer with them. This is a rhetorical technique indicating the imminency of something and the psychological transition that's already happening in someone's heart and mind. For example, if somebody is leaving a workplace and just basically just pretty much showing up, clocking in, but they've already given their two weeks resignation, you say, he's already gone. Right? Or if a marriage is falling apart, you say, she's already gone. Even if the employee is still there or the, or the wife or the husband is still there. You say he's already gone when it's imminent, when the writing's on the wall, when a psychological transition has already begun in somebody's heart and mind that their thinking, their inward self is already elsewhere. 
This is the sense of it when Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. It's imminent that he's leaving. He's as good as gone. He's turned his attention heavenward. But unlike an employee who's given his resignation and doesn't care anymore, unlike a spouse that's leaving and doesn't care anymore, Jesus still cares. In fact, very much so. Thus, he prays for his people. Let's turn our attention now to the substance of Jesus' requests for his people. First, Jesus prays that they be kept. Though he is leaving, he's not now unconcerned whether his people run straight into the road or wander off like sheep. Jesus maintains his care for them. And he commits them afresh into the arms of the everlasting God who has always been holding on to them. But has been doing so by one means and now must do so by another means. The disciples will no longer be within earshot of Jesus or within arm's reach. Jesus is going to die, rise, and ascend and will no longer be with them bodily. Incidentally, the 40 days of teaching about the kingdom of God between the resurrection and the ascension would be but a short-lived encore, so to speak, at the end of a musical performance, which you know isn't going to last forever. And the artist is wrapping up the show. The... Writing is on the wall. He's as good as God. Jesus is leaving, even notwithstanding that 40 days that he was with the disciples between the resurrection and ascension. Even then, he's no longer in the world. He's no longer with them. This is the reality then from this night forward. Jesus' face is set as flint to the cross and beyond the cross to heaven. He's no longer f- fully present, if I can put it that way, on earth. Thus, God can no longer keep and guard them in the same manner as He has been doing by means of the physical presence of Jesus. Jesus knows this and prays them for the ongoing divine keeping and guarding in spite of the imminent change of the manner of the guarding and keeping that is about to occur, transpire upon His death and resurrection and ascension. We know from what Jesus has already said in the Upper Room Discourse, which comprises chapters 13 to 16 in the last several months of preaching, but really he said it just a few moments ago on the night that it was spoken. We know from what Jesus has already said that same night, just a few minutes ago to the disciples, that God will do this work after Jesus' ascension by means of the coming Holy Spirit. So though the Spirit is not mentioned here in these words of Jesus in John 17, we should behold the triune God working together for your preservation here in John 17. The Son is praying for these disciples and and, and by extension you, which we're coming to again next week. Remember verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which means you. The Son is praying for you. Hear that, that you would be kept and guarded. And the Father is not at all unwilling, as if the Son is praying contrary to the Father's desires. No, the Son prays according to the Father's will, on the basis of what? Remember we saw last week? The covenant between them. Respecting redemption. Hang on a second here. I'm having technical difficulties. Seems that my file is corrupted here, so we're gonna, you're going to have to bear with me. 
Obviously, I'm going all by heart from here. <laughs> the, son, the son is not praying something that the father doesn't want to do. Right? There is this covenant of redemption between them concerning these people whom the father has given to the son. Even what the angel told Joseph. Right? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. There were people who were his people before he was even here on earth. You understand? So the son is praying that the spirit will preserve these people whom the father has given to the son. He's praying according to the father's will. So the son and the father and the spirit are all working together for the redemption of the elect. So the means will change. But the end goal has never changed, has never wavered. The people who have been given by the Father to the Son are secure. They will be kept. These disciples who had been walking with Jesus literally, not figuratively, but literally for the last three years, would be kept even after Jesus leaves. And you, believer, will be kept. Even though Jesus has ascended, He has poured out His Spirit in order that we would be kept, which is the Father's will and the Son's will and the Spirit's will. Jesus is praying all through John chapter 17 on the basis of what has already been agreed. He has pleaded, pled his merits in the first five verses. I have completed the work that you have gave me to do. Therefore, glorify your son now, he prayed as we studied last week. And here he prays, therefore, because I have completed the work that you have given me to do, keep them, guard them. He prays that they would be kept in the Father's name in verse 11. And he prays that they will be kept from the evil one in verse 15, which are just two sides of the same coin. Manifesting God's name to the people in verse 6 was being an agent of revelation, showing them who God is. And the response of the people is that they kept the Father's Word in verse 6, that they received them in verse 8, that they know in truth that Jesus came from the Father and they believe that the Father sent Him. They have come into God's name then. This is what it means. And so Jesus is praying that they will be kept in the Father's name. And, and He's praying that they will be kept from the evil one. There is an evil one who seeks, as we saw in John chapter 10, to steal, to kill, and to destroy and Jesus is praying that we will be protected from Him and kept believing and persevering in God's name. <laughs> when we think of the enemy of our souls stealing and killing and destroying, very often we might think, especially if we grew up in certain circles of paranormal and obvious outwards demonic manifestations and things like this. But there's also this in, insidious half-truth, sowing of doubt, snatching away the word from the path, as Jesus says in the parable of the sower, which is the work of the enemy. So Jesus is praying here that the word would find good soil in our hearts and that we would be kept and guarded, believing Receiving His Word. Persevering in the faith. This is what Jesus wants for us. And we can be sure because Jesus wasn't just throwing up a hopeful prayer. Jesus was praying on the basis of what had already been settled in eternity past between the Father and the Son and the Spirit concerning redemption. We can be sure that we will be guarded. We will be kept that underneath are the everlasting arms. This is the desire of Jesus.
But not only is it the desire of Jesus, but it's the desire of His Father. And it's the desire of His Spirit. It's not only the desire of our triune God that we be kept, however, but that we also be sanctified. We read a second petition in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There is something passive about being guarded and kept. We can guard something and we can keep something just by putting it away off to the side in a safe place. I've got important documents, passports, birth certificates and so forth, kept somewhere safe. Out of sight, out of mind, kept. The fella in the parable of the talents wanted to keep the money that he was entrusted to steward and not lose it. So he buried it in a hole. Jesus doesn't simply want us, want to bury us in a hole so that he doesn't lose us. He wants us not only to be kept in the faith, but also to progress in the faith. And so he prays here, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There is progress to be made. We, when we think about this concept, we need to understand that the word sanctify basically means set apart. And so God wants us to be set apart. And the question arises then, set apart from whom or from what? And the contrast that we see before us in this passage is set apart from the world. So we see in this passage a distinction that Jesus makes. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And so there are people who are called the world in this passage. And there are people who are called those who the Father has given to the Son. And they're not the same group. The world here then doesn't mean the physical universe. Jesus is not saying in verse 9, I'm not praying for the rocks and the trees, but for the people. Jesus is contrasting the world with the people whom the Father has given him. And so the the contrast here is between two groups of people. So you have the world and you have God's people, right? Or Christ's people. Jesus wants his people to be set apart from the world. Now, Jesus is not requesting that the Father take his people out of the world. We see that in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. In fact, Jesus in verse 17 says, As you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus actually wants his people to be among the people that are called the world. He doesn't want us to withdraw into a Christian enclave, nor does he want to just pull us out of the world, some kind of premature withdrawal of Christians, perhaps to heaven or perhaps to some kind of, um, yeah, some kind of enclave or some Christian camp where we all just take care of one another some sort of gated or walled community of Christians. This is not God's vision for us. So we are to be among the world. And yet, we are to be distinguished, set apart from the world. 
Some people go wrong with this. I think in this way. They look at what people in the world do. They say, okay, well, let's be different then. So people in the world wear fashionable clothes, so they say, well, let's wear drab clothes or unfashionable clothes, right? People in the world listen to secular music. Never mind that, let's make our own music, right? So they repudiate secular music, right? They, they see that, crit, that unbelievers go say, to the theater. This was maybe not so much of a big deal in our day and age, but a hundred years ago, it was scandalous, right? So the methodology is, these are the things the world does, so let's find some ways that we can be different and not do what the world does, right? The world watches sports on an evening. Well, let's run church programs instead so that people don't go watch sports, right? The world drinks alcohol. Well, let's not drink alcohol then, right? You see, the methodology here is let's see what the world does and then let's find ways to be different, right? I don't think we should be entirely critical of Christians who take an approach like this. The reason being that, frankly, I think most Christians, in our day and age at least, are probably too worldly. And that our, our most major problem is not so much that we're so set apart and so different. We're just, here we are living in our gated community, you know, withdrawing from the movie theater and withdrawing from secular music and having prayer meetings every night. And, like, not really our issue. You see what I mean? So, I think that we, we ought to respect and we ought to appreciate the impulse of Christians who are trying to do what Jesus says here and not just assimilate themselves to the world. And they're trying to be willing to make hard choices and take a stand for things that will distinguish them from the rest of the world. However, I do think that the approach is mainly misguided. Because the methodology is wrong. Jesus doesn't pray here, sanctify them by any means, according to any methodology. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So, <clears throat> is holiness unimportant? No. Is sanctification unimportant? No. But here's the question. Is the basis of our set-apartness unimportant? Again, <laughs> no. <laughs> Again, the answer is no. The basis of our set-apartness is not unimportant. We shouldn't just be set apart for the sake of being set apart. Nor should we pursue a set-apartness that is based on the doctrines and commandments of men. Jesus had some hard things to say in Mark chapter 7 about the people who teach as the doctrines of God the doctrines of comm and commandments of men and set themselves apart on that basis, namely the Pharisees. Jesus, you realize, was called a friend of sinners, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which I think means he liked them, and at least a lot of them liked him, at least at certain times. He even got invited to their parties. And yet Jesus never sinned, you realize. And so Jesus didn't evidently pursue difference for difference sake he also shows us that it is possible to actually have a lot in common and to get along well with unbelievers right he also shows us that it's possible to scandalize religious people 
without actually being sinful. Right? So, what do we do then? Do we go, well, my model is Jesus. So the things that I can imagine Jesus doing, I will do. And the things that I can't imagine Jesus doing, I won't do. Well, if there ever was a subjective guide to true holiness, that would be it. Because one person can imagine Jesus doing this, and, and another person can't imagine Jesus doing this. The mainline denominations, uh, I'm sure there are probably some churches like this in Barbados, but Canada is replete with them. Liberal denominations who can't imagine Jesus calling homosexuals to repent. Calling unmarried people living together to repent of their, their fornication. A Jesus that would be displeased with somebody who means well and has a good heart but disobeys God's commandments. You understand? They can't conceive of Jesus being a certain way. Right? The way I think of Jesus is very different. So how could this be a reliable God? What is going to be the basis of our set-apartness? What is going to be the basis of our sanctification? What does it say in this passage? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the question is here. Is what Jesus envisions, basically, that we look at the world... And we see a bunch of things that the world is doing and we say, well, I could give that up and I could give that up and I could give that up and I could give that up. And therefore, I will be sanctified and set apart. Is that the right methodology? No. Is it the right methodology to say, well, Jesus will be my model. So far, so good. Right? And so whatever I think he would do, I will do. And whatever I don't think he would do, I won't do. Again, not quite right. Because there's an awful lot of subjectivity there. Right? The manner in which and the basis upon which we are to actually be set apart is by the Word of God. Is by the truth. Your Word is truth. We need to be people of the book. Though our imaginations about what Jesus might and mightn't do could be Correct, they could also be incorrect. But the record here of what Jesus did and what Jesus didn't do is correct. And the teaching of Jesus, the record of the teaching of Jesus here is correct. And the record of the apostles and the prophets' teaching here is correct. And so we. are on sure footing. When we think about progressing in the faith, not just being kept, but progressing. Jesus' goal is not merely that we would be kept in the faith, but that we would progress in the faith. Not merely that we would be put in a hole, so to speak, and that when He returns, we're still here, and we're still in the faith. Jesus' goal is that we actually make progress in the meantime. What we find is that true holiness actually might look a lot different than a lot of people raised in the church, think it is. Set free from the doctrines and the commandments of men, you actually find yourself free to have relationships with people who are not Christians. And you might find that you actually like being with them. And that some of them actually like being with you. And you might find that you go to a theater together. Or you might find that you have a beer together. You 
will also find that many of them like you and want to be around you and that, that you get along real good. You also might find, set free from the doctrines and commandments of men, that as you go to the theater or have a beer with somebody, you upset a lot of religious people and that they end up not liking you so much. You will also find that as you live free from the doctrines and commandments of men, but very serious about the book, that you upset a lot of unbelievers and that they actually really resent you and hate you and that you actually don't get invited back to some parties, right? This is not a people-pleasing, popularity contest-winning strategy that I'm giving you today. But what I'm telling you is that living this way might upset some people that you thought it wouldn't, and it might open up some new doors for relationship with people you thought it wouldn't, and it might not close some doors with people that you thought it would, and so on and so forth. What I'm saying is that Jesus' teaching here might not be what we, many of us in the last hundred years in the West have been taught. Holiness looks like. Real holiness is being really loose and flexible and unconcerned about things that the Bible just doesn't really give us any indication are crucial issues. And it also means being very serious about the things that the Bible does tell us are important issues. Jesus' prayer here isn't just that we'll be different, but that we will be different on the basis of the truth. Different on the basis of the book. Now, some of you will hear this and be like, oh, okay, well, so I can listen to secular music and watch a Hollywood movie and drink a beer and Jesus will still keep me. Well, that may be true. I think you missed the point. When we read what Jesus says here, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Not only are we freed from the doctrines and commandments of men, but there's also a heavy responsibility placed upon us to be Bible-shaped people. This is Jesus' plan for you, is that you actually become truly holy and that you actually make progress in the Christian faith, which is actually harder than just obeying an outward list of do's and don'ts. So you actually need to get very, very serious about everything that the Bible teaches. Let me just give you a couple examples. Obviously, it's, it's really a function of the totality of the ministry of the church to enumerate what we're supposed to do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for decades and help us be fully formed. But let me, just, let me give you just two. You should actually get like real serious about the church. Because when we read the Bible, churchmanship is a big deal. Being meaningfully connected with other Christians, committed to the local church, prioritizing worship and making everything else in your life secondary and tertiary to that. Making sure that God is right at the center and that His people are, are very, very central as well. Obviously not co-equal with God, but both are non-negotiable. And that we live out our lives in the context of a community of faith where we are known and loved, where we know and love others, where we confess our sins, where we forgive one another, and so on and so forth. And that's hard. But not only are we to be very serious about 
the church, remember we're not just to be an enclave that withdraws. Right? We're not just to withdraw into our own gated community, so to speak, behind our walls and just rally together. Like God's real serious about churchmanship, so we're real serious about churchmanship. And that's it. What does Jesus say in this passage we're also supposed to be real serious about? Look at it. Right after he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. We're to be real serious about evangelism. We're to be real serious about reaching people. We have our marching orders from Christ here. And we have our paradigm for, for what we're permitted to do and what we're not permitted to do as we go. We can't sin to try to get people in. Right? But there's, there's a yoke of extra-biblical expectations taken off us when Jesus makes the truth the basis of our sanctification. We don't have to be unrelatable, churchy people that can't sit down with unbelievers and have a real conversation. We don't have to be unrelatable, churchy people who refuse to go to certain places or talk to certain kinds of people lest we be misunderstood or labeled as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's a great flexibility in how we go and who we go to and when we go and so on and so forth. This freedom is an aid and a help to us in this work. It's not given to us, as Jude puts it, as a license for immorality. It's not given to us to go be leeches, taking from unbelievers whatever they have to offer in life, just the enjoyment of their company and their, their gifts and their friendship and just take, 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 take till they land themselves in hell because we just took, took, took and never gave. It's not just, it's not just, we're not just supposed to just be like, well, it's permissible and just go out and live unconcerned lives about the people around us, right? As we get with people and as we get around the house or around the table in the house of a tax collector or a sinner, what we're actually supposed to be doing is coming to them as Christ came into this world. As Christ was sent here, so we are sent into the world. If you are intending to be sanctified by the truth, you have to wrestle with the fact that this is one of the huge priorities of Scripture. And this is also the very first thing Jesus says after He says, sanctify them by the truth. So over the last hundred years, a large segment of the church has withdrawn from the world lest they be thought of as worldly. And they've set up man-made rules and Christian culture stuff that has no basis in the Bible but have made themselves culturally foreign even within their own place of birth and place of residence so that there's really no interaction between the salt of the earth and the meat which it's intended to preserve. And there's really actually no reaching happening. Unless there's going to be a cross-cultural seeker who's going to try to get past all of the man-made stuff to find God. Because there's no going into the world. And there's no, there's no, there are no, if I can put it this way, natural indigenous, indigenous missionaries. Because the Christians have become so foreign to their own culture that even when they go, they seem like they're speaking in a foreign tongue. So hear me real carefully. Holiness is very important. 
I'm not giving you any license whatsoever to sin. You, you must be sanctified by the truth. That's a non-negotiable thing. But just be careful as we understand Jesus saying here and praying for us, not only that we will be kept, but also that we will progress in the faith. Also that we will be sanctified. Be careful that you're not shooting at the wrong basket. Be careful that you're not firing an arrow at the wrong target. What does sanctification actually look like? That's a very important question as we embark on this endeavor. What does it mean to be in the world and not of the world? Perhaps not what you've always thought. Perhaps not what you've always been taught. What we need to do is be people of the book and look real carefully at what actually matters to God, what God is actually serious about, and be wide where the Bible's wide and narrow where the Bible's narrow. Loose where the Bible's loose. But tight and resolute and non-negotiable where the Bible is. There's a criticism nowadays that you hear sometimes when somebody makes a very serious comment, when other people are joking around, a sarcastic comment. You might have seen it on, under uh, like YouTube videos, comment section or something. You must be fun at parties. Right? The implication is that this person's uptight about everything. Right? Sometimes Christians get real uptight about everything. But do you understand that our Lord and Savior was actually fun at parties? So let that sink in, right? Be uptight, be resolute, be real serious about the things you need to be. But make sure that the basis of your sanctification is actually the truth. And then go into the world. As Jesus says here, as the Father sent me, right? As you sent me into the world, speaking to His Father, so I have sent them into the world. You are sent. You must go. You are free from the doctrines and commandments of men. You are beholden to the doctrines and commandments of God. With that in mind, don't settle for being kept in the faith. Think about what Christian maturity actually looks like and embrace it, including God's mission to seek and to save the lost and enter fully into that. This is Jesus' prayer for you, for us, this morning. We often sing, Speak, O Lord, before the sermon as we prepare to receive the food of His Holy Word. But we're going to sing it now as we leave from here because I want to impress upon you that we're not just to be shaped by God's Word on Sundays, but on Mondays too.